And welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. It's a Saturday night. We're talking baseball whenever. I'm your host, Christianto. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I am doing amazing. We got a great show today for so many different reasons. We got Jeff Passett on the show today. Yes, we do. Uh, joining <laughs> our fourth our fourth guest on the program, I think. Yeah. Fifth. Fifth. Mm -hmm. um, because there's Zach Demko, Corey Barasa, Matt Brash, and Nico Fasella. Yes, Nico Fasella is our fourth guest. Yeah, our fifth guest. He joins a cast of characters uh, as a guest on the show to be named later. Not a direct guest. Uh, Daniel uh, needed an interview with a journalist for his journalist, journalistic ethics class. Shout out to the Springfield CUSJ program. Um, and uh, went big, DM'd Jeff Passan, and uh, basically got a, a a 20 minute interview with him about covering baseball. Yeah. So it was about, you know, it was a lot about journalism uh, and his, his role in that and some of the uh, sort of ethical rules of it and times where he's had to endure them. Uh, it was a very fun interview. He gave us about 20 minutes and you will hear that uh, at some point in the show. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be great. I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to hearing it myself for mm -hmm. sure um it's unbelievable that we we were able to uh kind of get him in a way and and talk to him directly pretty unbelievable that's right um, but not the only big news uh happening in the world of baseball uh we had you know the division series the division series divisions i don't know how to pluralize that we had four division series uh kind of I mean, I guess somewhat disappointing. Two sweeps, uh, one that went four games, one that went five games. Uh, luckily, luckily there was one that went five. But uh, an interesting week of division series games, and uh, you know now we're now we're down to the final four. Yeah, so we're gonna kick things off. Uh, you mentioned we had two sweeps, and we're gonna go over them right now. The Braves and the Marlins. Uh, the Marlins, you know, people were riding them just because of, I guess, the meme of they've never lost a playoff series before. I picked Marlins in five just because of that meme. Uh, but the Braves offense, I mean, they just they just carried their way through that. Yeah. And, you know, I would say the Marlins, picking the Marlins wasn't even, it wasn't just because of the meme. The meme, you know, it, it wrote a lot of that momentum. But, you know. They have a very. They had a very good starting staff: Alcantara, uh, Sanchez, and Lopez. and Lopez. Pablo Lopez. They they all uh, very good. Dominated the Cubs' offense uh, in the series that they had, but didn't seem to translate over the Braves. Um, I guess. I guess you know beating that central bubble. I guess beating the Cubs didn't really mean as much i expected it to go five personally i had the braves but i had them in five um and i guess i guess the braves are proving they're kind of for real this this season and you know it looked like it did look kind of promising for the marlins at first they had a 4-1 lead uh midway through the third inning in game one and i remember i remember thinking the marlins are really going to do it 
like they're going to come through. And most of those, a lot of those runs came on two out hits as well. So, you know, I was thinking this team's like, they got the clutch hitting, like they just have that gut that might carry them. And, and then the reality struck uh, the Braves got two in the third inning. That was off of a double by Marcelo Zuna and then another double by Travis Darno to make it four, three. And it kind of stayed that way for a while in game one. And then, then we hit the seventh inning. Austin Riley hit a single to center field off of Sandy Alcantara. Ronald Acuna Jr., who hit a leadoff home run and then got hit, came up for a third time against Alcantara and hit a single in the center field to move Riley to second. And then Alcantara got taken out. Yimmy Garcia, who was by far the Marlins' best reliever this year, got put in. He got Freddie Freeman to ground out, moved Riley to third, uh, and there was a force play at second, so Freeman was at first. So with men on the corners and one out, Marcelo Zuna proceeded to hit the game-tying single into left down the line, and then Travis Darno gave him the dagger, a three-run home run to dead center field off of a hanging slider from Garcia. And, I mean, Dansby Swanson also hit a two-run home run two batters later to make it 9-4. And that was, that was the dagger for the Marlins in that game and seemingly the series. Yeah, uh, yeah, the Marlins coming out, yeah, especially up 4-1, it looked like it looked very good for them because they were getting those runs. Also, mind you, off of it was off Max Freed, right? Yes. Yeah, they were off, you know, Max Freed, who's in the Cy Young conversation this year and uh, shut out the Reds uh, last series for seven innings. And yeah, it was looking very good because also if you beat Max Freed, that's extremely good if you're the Marlins because you know that the rotation depth uh, outside of Max Fried and Ian Anderson is right. not great with the Braves. Um, and unfortunately for them, uh, they, they kind of lost it. And with that game, just kind of lost control of the series. Yeah. And that Matt Joyce hit a two, hit a two, uh, hit another single in the, in the eighth to make it five to nine. Uh, but that was that was the last the Marlins would ever have to get excited for in the series. Um, in game two, they had to face my guy, the 518 king himself, Ian Anderson. And he, all he did was pitch five and two-thirds innings, allowing three hits, zero earned runs, one walk, and eight strikeouts, a game score of 70. He became the second pitcher in Major League history to record five shutout innings and eight-plus strikeouts in each of their first two playoff appearances in their career. The other guy to do that was Steve Avery, also a Brave, in 1991, his age 21 season. So it's the Braves that have a knack for doing that, and Anderson lived up to the expectations. Yeah. Ian Anderson has looked very good, very, very good in the playoffs. Uh, translated mm -hmm. that from the regular season, he's shut out the uh, – yeah, shut out the Reds when, when he was pitching, shut out the Marlins when he was pitching. Uh, very, you know, looks very good for the Braves there, especially in, in the future. And then in the last – Yeah, and then uh, – yeah, and then in the last game, uh, Kyle Wright uh, kind of surprises us. He goes six shutout innings and, uh, you know, has gets some help from the offense as well. That's right. Uh, so all the scoring came between the third and fifth innings. Um, it started with an RBI single from Marcelo Zuna, 
a double from Travis Darno and a sack fly by Dansby Swanson. Uh, that made it 3 nothing Atlanta immediately. And then Freeman hit an RBI single. And then in the, in the fifth, Dansby hit an RBI single and Duvall hit an RBI double. And it was over from there. Kyle Wright, like you mentioned, Chris, he did a fantastic job considering what we were sort of expecting from him. Six innings, three hits, no runs, two walks, seven strikeouts. Game score of 71 actually had a better game score than Anderson. Yeah, uh, it was pretty pretty interesting to watch. And uh, I looked at the at the Savant numbers. Uh, only two only uh, two batted balls um, ha- had an ex- expected batting average of above 500 um, wow. from from Kyle Wright. So I mean, you know, everything everything looked good for him. Uh, maybe something he can he can translate into the championship series and potentially the World Series because you know they definitely they definitely need him and the rest of the rotation to perform, especially in a best of seven. Um, what, anything, anything else to take away from this Braves Marlins series? I, I, I was kind of honestly kind of surprised to see the sweep. I was too. Um, I think one thing we should acknowledge is the, the Marlins eulogy. I think we should do a brief one of those. Um, what do we make of the Marlins after this season? I mean, they sort of snuck in, you know, no one really knows how much they can sustain what they have going, but they are going to be an interesting team in 2021. What do you think, what do you think they do in the off season? I mean, I don't know. I, they're still fresh off of that fire sale that they had um, yeah. from twenty from twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen ish, where they've traded Yelich, Stanton, uh, Real Muto, o- Ozuna, uh, and some some others. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they're ready to spend money yet. They have a very young team, but. I mean, I'm telling you that rotation is promising. Al- Alcantara, Lopez, and Sanchez look very promising uh, in their young careers. How it, Alcantara is like mid twenties, right? Uh, yeah, I'd say early to mid twenties. Um, let me just check that right now. He was already an All Star, so he's already got some career accolades. And he is in. This was his age twenty four season, so he yeah. he just he turned twenty five in September. Yeah, Pablo Lopez is in his age. 24 season and Sixto Sanchez uh, right now is age 21 season. He's doing yeah, turn 22 in July. I mean, those three pitchers, you Young. know, you could see, you could see success from them for a long time. Like that's a problem in the national league East. Um, their offense. I don't know how long they're going to succeed. You know, that's what, I guess what you have free agency for, but you never, you never know with the Marlins. I, I don't know what they could yeah, go Yeah, at least after. it's weird. It's, it's very weird, and it's exciting that but the Marlins you have are- the Mets. Yeah, you have the Mets going through an ownership change. You have the Phillies. I mean, where do we even start with the Phillies? I mean, they have, they have the potential. They could get there. They just, you know, they can't perform when they need to. But they are, they are a move away from being serious contenders. Uh, and that move would be re-signing JTO Real Muto. The Marlins obviously just made the postseason. The Nationals are, who knows? Uh, I mean, you get Strasburg back, you get Serger uh, back to his normal self. You get Corbin back on his normal self. That's still a threatening team with Soto, especially. Um, there is a lot of question marks in the NL East next year. Yeah, because the the NL East, like for the past couple of years, we've we've known like you know those four teams at the top. They're gonna 
they're going to battle it out. But I guess you have the Marlins at the bottom. Now you, got, you have to consider the Marlins. Now the like Marlins, they, Marlins have, have kind of thrown their hat in the ring. The Marlins have put themselves in the conversation this year. And I don't know how – if they will sustain that over a 162-game sample. But we, you can't just not talk about them going into next season, which is encouraging, which is yeah. beyond where we thought they would be at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, pretty – Pretty wild that uh, this kind of evolved this year. Um, yeah, you you don't know what to do with the Phillies. They have, you know, a ton of talent with Harper, Real Muto, Wheeler, Nola, um, Segura. Mets, you have talent over there, too. You have DeGrom. You have Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, uh, Brandon Nimmo, I guess you could throw and in. you have there. the ownership change. Uh, you have what? The ownership change, too. Yeah, you have the ownership change. They're probably going to be spending more money. Nationals are still the reigning champions, and they uh, have a very good pitching staff and probably the best young star in the league. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, you have the Braves, who have been – Braves are the Braves. They yeah. need no introduction. You'll Three see it. And at least yeah. titles. Yeah. Yep. And now the Marlins. It's a crazy division for sure. Like, one of the craziest divisions just got crazier with the Marlins. There, and, you can make a case for any of those five teams to be competitive. Yes, absolutely. Um, very, very interesting. But, yeah, yeah, the Marlins, props to the Marlins. They were kind of fun. I never really I – I was always rooting against them in the regular season. I just didn't want them in the playoffs. I always wanted another team in the playoffs instead of them, like the Phillies or um, – Because you thought they would be a stepping stone. Yeah, I, I thought they were just – I thought they just had a hot start, and uh, yeah, I thought they'd be a stepping stone, absolutely, and proven wrong in the in that wild card series. And yeah, props to them. Good year for the Marlins, but yeah, let's let's get into the other National League series. Dodgers Padres, another sweep. This one was definitely surprising. We were we were both, you know, very. Uh, kind of back and forth on what could happen in this series. We were both wondering maybe the Padres could win this series in five games, but the Dodgers, uh, Dodgers came to play and they they swept. Uh, they found different ways to win and uh, swept the Padres. Pretty pretty crazy to consider. Yeah, I mean let's just let's just call it spade a spade here, Chris. The Dodgers are the best team in the league, and uh. That's that's not even up for question at this point. You know they do they. They're very they're a very good team. Uh, they have a lot of good assets on this team, and they're built to win a championship. They just haven't done it yet. And this is big because this was the the team with the second best record in the National League, and they, you know, they took them to the cleaners no problem. I think the Braves are going to be a bigger test for them, especially because and you know I think this will be brought up a lot when we talk about the Padres. Uh, the fact that Clevenger and Lamette were both unable to pitch this series obviously does play a factor. I think it could have been more competitive, but ultimately I still think the Dodgers would have taken it regardless. So that's where I'm at with that series. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they, the Dodgers were able to avoid probably the top two pitchers with the Padres. The top two pitchers for the Braves are, are kind of dangerous to them with Freed and Anderson, especially Anderson 
uh, with mm -hmm. the with the momentum he has that's right, that's going right. on. Um, but yeah, it was surprising. Uh, game one was uh, you know just the Dodgers just just outplayed the Padres. They they got more hits. Um, they got more runners in in scoring position. Uh, took advantage of the Padres' mistakes. Uh, Kershaw had a very good game. Uh, that or no, Kershaw started game two. Uh, Bueller and May combined for a uh, for a good outing. Uh, Bueller went four, May went two, and then the rest of the bullpen did the work. Um, and then game two was a very very intriguing game. Uh, probably most exciting. Definitely the most exciting game of that series. Absolutely. I mean, there was so many elements to this game that just made it into a thriller. You have, I mean, you have Cody Bellinger hitting a home run uh, to put the Dodgers up four to one and then robbing one. Uh, not, not, not just that, but robbing Fernando Tatis Jr. of a home run. That's the, I mean, that's the best guy you could possibly want to, to rob there. You have Bruce Dark Gratterall uh, blowing kisses at Manny Machado. You have that sort of drama going on. And you have the ninth inning where, you know, Kenley Jansen, he didn't have his best stuff. They had to bring in Joe Kelly, uh, who got the heart rates going of every Dodger fan. But in the end, the one constant, Eric Hosmer grounds out to end the game. Absolute poetic ending for San Diego in that one. Yeah, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't you know, make that adjustment for too long. He still couldn't avoid – uh, grounding out in the key moment, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, just not great, but yeah, I mean, the Padres, that was, I guess that was kind of all the hope that they had, you know, they could have, you know, won that, got momentum and taken that into game three, but I think it might've just, might just killed them mentally. And then the, the Dodgers just got off to a, a very hot start, I guess, starting in the third inning in game three. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, they scored four. Game three was just a wash. Yeah, game game three just yeah, it was a it was a it was a was it a bullpen game for the for the Padres? Yeah, because yeah, it was a bullpen game and uh some of it, you know, uh, Adrian Morhone uh, did not get it done. He pitched two innings, gave up three earned runs, made way to Craig Stammen, who also gave up three earned runs, and Patino came in, who gave up an earned run. And from there, uh, I mean, obviously the wheels fell off there, but it didn't get any better for them going forward. Yeah, and I guess it just shows you, you know, like you're, it's, you're not going to be able to beat the Dodgers if you don't have your top two starters. It's just – it's really not going to be able to happen. Um, yeah. You know, the Padres would have – the Padres are a good team. But they not only that, and Chris Paddock, Chris Paddock wasn't really there either. Yeah, exactly. Need yeah, more they, from him. They, they, need, uh, they needed their, <clears throat> their full roster in order, to, in order to win that series. And, um, unfortunately, they did not have that. And uh, the Dodgers – Dodgers definitely – I guess kind of did what they were supposed to, and they're they're kind of a machine right now. They are. Uh, I mean, both them and the Braves haven't lost a game all postseason, so that's going to be an exciting matchup, and we'll obviously preview that later. Uh, but let's let's talk about the Padres now, Chris. I want to ask you something. Do you think, in the next say three to five years, the Padres are going to win an NL West title? Uh, three three to five, 
yeah, in the next five, I think they will win the uh, win the NL West at some point. Um, the Dodgers, they will get older, and the Padres, we have seen AJ Preller and the ownership is willing to go get big free agents if they want to. Um, maybe they make a move this off season now that they've established that they that they can be successful for a whole season. You know, maybe not a I guess one sixty two, but I mean they were this they had the second best record in the National League. Um, so I think you know that commitment to uh, getting getting free agents for a lot of money maybe making another trade. And also, you know, they got more prospects coming. They got Mackenzie Gore coming. Luis Patino is still developing. Um, and then, you, of course, you have the talent stacked with, uh, you know, Tatis, uh, Machado, Cronenworth. You have a good bullpen with Pomeranz, Yates, uh, and, and everyone. Yeah, I think they'll win one. I don't know if – I don't know if it'll be next year. I could see them winning in, uh, in 2022, 2023. Um, I could see it happening. You know, you know, the Dodgers will probably be a wild card team that year anyway. Um, if in the case that that happens, they can maintain success, but I, I can, I can definitely see it happening. Okay. What, what are, no. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm really glad that Tatis got to got to shine this year, and I'm excited to see what he can do in a full 162 because we still have not seen that yet. Uh, right. And next year we're going to be treated to that. Um, this was an Padres fans should have their heads hang high after this season. Uh, I was skeptical on whether they were going to be able to take that next step, and boy was I wrong. They took it, and and then some. 37 wins on the season, the second best record in the National League. Jake Cronenworth coming out of nowhere to likely win NL MVP. If not him, then probably Devin Williams on Milwaukee. Rookie of the year. But, what did I say? He said MVP. Oh, yeah, rookie of the year. Um, Eric Hosmer fixed the ground ball issue for, the, for some time. Uh, I mean, obviously you can't judge it off of one at-bat, but that just happened to be the number one at-bat of his season. Uh, but he had an encouraging year. Will Myers had an encouraging year. Uh, I'm excited to see what Tommy Pham can do in a year where he doesn't get hurt. Trent Grisham took a step forward. This team has so much to look forward to, and they are only going to get better from here. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So They can only go up from here. Yeah, Padres, Padres are on the up and up um, for sure, especially with that financial commitment that they appear to have. Um, and now we go into the American League. Um, another surprising, very surprising series. We thought – we, we still thought the Astros were a fluke from the twin series, but apparently we were wrong and uh, they beat the A's. They almost swept them, but uh, got them and got them in four eventually. Um, yeah. And they seem, they seem to still, you know, even though it was four games, they seem to just dominate the series. Yeah. I know that nobody wants to do this, but you have to tip your cap to the Astros because they've proven us wrong. And they are showing the world that, yes, they can hit the ball when they don't know what's coming. And they'll even spot a team three runs when giving them the knowledge of what's coming and still smoke them 11-6 to six in a game. Yeah, that's true. Zach Granke, uh, Zach Granke I guess, uh, did some, did some re reciprocation for, for what the Astros were doing uh, yeah. 
a couple years back, and uh, Astros still won the game. So maybe Carlos Correa is right. No, I'm Speaking kidding. of Carlos Correa, he went nuts this series. Did you want to guess what his OPS was for the series? Uh, for this series, uh, was was it in the uh, 1600s? It was higher. Uh, was it in the 1800s? It was lower. It was in the 17. It was 1715 on the series. Who could forget? All right. Okay. Yeah, that's uh. You're helping the team out for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I'm uh, sorry. Correct. It was uh, it was 1754, not 1715. 1754. He had three home runs, 14 at-bats, seven hits, uh, 11 RBIs, four walks, only three strikeouts. Yeah, this he absolutely dominated. And Jose Altuve, uh, he had a 1326 OPS. George Springer had an 1199 OPS. Bregman had an 1167 OPS. Brantley had an 1105 OPS. Uh, the core absolutely destroyed this series. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, I, thought, I thought this um, – the Astros definitely seem to have a, a new attitude to them, I guess, in the postseason. And I was expecting this to be uh, – to happen the whole year. I had the Astros winning the, the AL West and being the one seed in the American League. I expected them to kind of be on a revenge tour. But I guess that's started in the postseason. And they – I don't know. They seem to be hitting, hitting the ball well. Uh, I mean, who? What was the pitching order of the uh, of the Athletics? I mean, they're it's not they're not facing terrible pitchers either. No, it was okay. I know, I know for facts. Um, let's see, Chris Bassett pitched game one. Uh, Sean Manaya pitched game two. Uh, I believe Fires pitched game no. Lazardo pitched game three, and Montas pitched game four. Yeah, and like, you know, Montas. Montas had some had his moments uh, in the regular season. He's not a bad pitcher. Sean Manaya has been kind of consistently good. Chris Bassett is on a has been on a very good trend, and he did well against the White Sox, if I'm not mistaken. Or was it game two or three? It was game two. Yeah, I think I think he did well against the. He did. Against the yeah. White Sox. He did very well. He beat Gavin but, Dallas. But yeah, um, they just have seemed to have, have uh, pulled it together in the playoffs, and very, you know, they're very unpredictable. I mean, the Rays could, the Rays could sweep them. I wouldn't be surprised. It could go seven. I wouldn't be surprised. Astros could win. I wouldn't be that surprised. I'd, I'd be somewhat surprised, but I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. Um, like I, I have no idea what to think of this team right now. It's because a lot of the, the pitching in particular is not the, is not the familiar, familiar faces. You obviously don't have Verlander, and you obviously don't have Garrett Cole. But you have, and I'll talk about these guys later, Framber Valdez and Christian Javier are two guys in particular that have stepped up. Uh, Javier was out of the bullpen. And also McCullers has done, I mean, he didn't do very well in his first outing. He gave up three home runs. But he had a very good month of September, and he was able to put the Astros in a position to win in game one. Um, and yeah, we'll, we will talk about more about their pitching staff and the unfamiliarity of it. But yeah, this team has a, has a new look to it and they're, they're still rolling. And honestly, it's weird because obviously, you know, as a baseball fan, you don't want to see the Astros win because of the whole cheating scandal. 
I would be so happy for Dusty Baker if they win. Yeah, I mean, he would be uh, he would be the ultimate winner in that. Um, yeah, no one's no one's hated on you him at all. You can't, you can't hate on Dusty Baker. Unless yeah. you're like a, a bitter Nationals fan, and you can't be—you can't be a bitter Nationals fan. They won. They won anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah exactly. Every every team he's managed has since won, right? Because the Giants have since won, the Cubs have since won, the Nationals have since won. Am I missing a team? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar with his career. I I believe there is one other team that I am missing. Uh oh, the Reds. Yeah. Okay. I guess the Reds. <laughs> Yeah, yeah he managed the Reds for six seasons. Yeah. But yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe if you're a Reds fan and you, I don't know, he gave you he gave you two winning seasons. He gave you three winning seasons over there in his six years. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that was, you know, sort of in the in the baseball world, kind of universally loved. He took over the most hated team in baseball at the time, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, I guess in the postseason, they're doing well. And, you know, if they end up actually winning the World Series, which I think there's a low chance of that happening, I mean, what do you even think of that? I mean, you know, it doesn't – like, they still – they still did what they did in 2017, but I guess Houston has its first legit title if this happens. People are going to point at the 21 and 30 – and 29 and 31 record and be like, no, that's not valid. You shouldn't have been in the postseason. But, I mean, you know, regardless of what your record is, if you go through the 16-team postseason and win, that obviously – that isn't, you know – maybe you could say it's a fluke, but they earned it. Yeah, and if you get past the Rays and then the Dodgers or Braves, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I, can't, I, couldn't, I couldn't pull that out, really. Um, it, it, would be, it would be really something. But, yeah, uh, the Astros – yeah, Astros won that series mostly because of their offense. Um, there was some good bullpen work going on a little bit. I mean, I guess they blew it in game in game three, but yeah, mm-hmm. it was their offense. They scored uh, they scored ten runs in the first game, uh, five in the second game, nine or seven in the third game and loss, and then eleven in the fourth game. So it was uh, it was their offense. It was the home you know, run we for sure. And we were concerned about A's pitching too, so it could have been that. But I mean, because they they didn't the offense wasn't really there against the Twins. That was more pitching. It's kind of just everything's going right for them. But yeah, I think we're gonna see a lot. I think this series against the Rays is going to show us a lot more of who they are. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I guess I guess we said that a little bit with the A's, but the A's we had our doubts about for sure uh, against the White Sox. So I mean, if the Astros can get through the Rays, they are a proven team for sure but um if they get totally demolished by them uh then you know we we could have their doubts that they you know they probably had a bit of an easier path than a lot of other teams uh the astros did with facing facing you know i guess in recent memory historically bad postseason teams teams that you know neither of them have been have won a playoff series since 06 um, and they've been to the playoffs multiple times. Just uh, so I don't know. We'll see about the Astros. We'll see how they do in their series against the Rays. And speaking of the Rays, we're going to get into the last division series that 
uh, just happened. Most exciting. This is the best game. series in the best game. Yeah, best series. Um, yeah, most intense game for sure. I was on the edge of my seat uh, the whole entire game. Yeah. And um, uh, the ahead. Rays and the Yankees. Um, Daniel predicted exactly how this would go. Uh, split the first two, split the next two. Rays win after going out all out in game five. Um, I mean, just uh, it, it was a very interesting game. We, we can start with game one, I guess. Yeah, uh, game one, you have Blake Snell, you have Garrett Cole. Um, you know, the, the, Garrett Cole was obviously the big get for the Yankees in the offseason. And to be fair, he had nothing to do with this, this series loss for the Yankees. I think we can have, acknowledge that with no problem. He was, exactly. he was on his A game both days. Uh, he did give up a couple home runs in game one, uh, both to Randy Orozarena and G-Man Choi. But nonetheless, he was still, still able to power through and win the game and pitch six innings, three earned runs, eight strikeouts. That's a quality start. Uh, and obviously the Yankees were able to get to Blake Snell uh, with three home runs, I believe. Uh, one from Higashioka, one from Judge, and one from Frazier. And also a sack fly from Hicks. So, yeah, I mean, the Yankees, were, they were able to get to Blake Snell in game one. Then obviously the dagger came in the ninth when John Curtis came on and promptly gave up a nuke to dead center field to John Carlos Stanton for a grand slam. Uh, it was a 9-3 to Yankee final. Yeah, they uh, Yankees came out, did very well in game one. Um, they, I think they typically do – I don't know. I guess in recent memory, they've done well in, in game ones, kind of establishing yeah. themselves. Then game two comes. They're facing Tyler Glass now. They have uh, what appeared to be Debbie Garcia on the mound. And uh, and uh, Tyler Glass now kind of does his thing. He gave up four runs ultimately, but only one run in the first three innings. Uh, this was after the Rays had established a solid lead. So the Yankees bring in, they, they start Debbie Garcia. He goes one inning. He allows uh, one run on a, on a hit on a home run. And, uh, and then uh, they bring in the more experienced pitcher, Jay Happ, and it kind of backfires on them. It absolutely backfired in their face. Jay Happ, this was obviously a very controversial decision. Uh, you know, a lot of Yankee fans and baseball fans in general are looking at this as sort of the route to when everything started falling apart for the Yankees. Um, and I think that it is a fair criticism. But one thing that I, you know, I like to play, I guess, devil's advocate for is that if Jay Happ goes out there and pitches well, we're talking about, you know, Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone being the biggest geniuses in baseball. And I get that, obviously, Jay Happ, you know, he, he isn't – I don't think people had much expectations for him going into this series and just into the playoffs in general, but he was one of my how about that's. So, I mean, I think I still think it is a question mark. Um, they tried to beat the Rays at their own game, and that's not, you know, that's not the Yankee way. The Yankee way is, you know, you have the money, you go out and spend it, and you put a, you know, put a team out in the field and play the traditional way. Uh, and it obviously backfired for them, like you said. Yeah, and, you know, 
you can only go the Rays way if you have the Rays depth. Uh, the and, and the Rays, you know, the strategy. Like the Rays obviously don't have the money to spend, so this is how they compensate for that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the Rays, the Rays way. The Yankees, yeah, they have the traditional roster format. You have a starter go five, six innings, and then you build you build up to probably the three main guys in your bullpen. This year, it's it's Britton Green and uh, and Chapman. Last year, it was Britton Adovino and Chapman. That's so right. that's kind of that's kind of how they've built their roster, and they decided to go with like a surprise opener, which was, uh, it was weird. It was very weird. Um, yeah, I mean that that plan it wastes Devi Garcia and it also wastes Jay Happ, um, and this that put a lot of questions on Game Four for me. I mean, I didn't know, and we'll talk about that later. But I didn't feel very confident in Jordan Montgomery, and obviously, I was proven wrong there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you try to beat the Rays in their own game, and it's in most cases it's not going to work out. You know, the Rays had, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five lefties in their starting lineup. So I think that had a lot to do with the half decision. Uh, the problem is he gave up two home runs to righties. He gave one up to Margot and one up to Zanino, two of the four righties in the lineup. Yeah. So. so you can yeah. blame. You can blame Cashman Boone and company. You can blame Jay Happ. Uh, either way is honestly valid because, you know, he to his credit, he did, Jay Happ did get the lefties out outside of Joey Wendell, I think, got a couple of hits off of him. But, yeah, I mean, this was really a questionable decision on the Yankees' part, and you could very well make the case that it led to their downfall. Yeah, it might have been, been a little, a little too cute. Um, but I guess in defense of them, between Debbie Garcia and Jay Happ, you don't really know who to go with at this point. Jay Happ, uh, you don't really know if you can uh, rely on him. Uh, and then yeah. Debbie Garcia, same question. I mean, he, he's more highly touted, but you don't know if he has the experience to go through a full postseason start. But, you know, it didn't work either way. And that led into game three where they had Masahiro Tanaka on the mound, um, who is generally pretty good in the postseason, had a bad start in uh, against the Indians, but there's a, a whole rain situation, rain delay after mm -hmm. like his first inning. It was, it was a weird situation. So we, we kind of gave him a mulligan on that one. And uh, it was going pretty well up until the fourth inning for him. Um, yeah. That was when the wheels fell off. Yeah, it was uh, Joey Wendell hit a hit a single to center. Then uh, Willie Adams walked on, a, I guess, a controversial call. It was uh, a ball. To make it, it was a ball. To make it first and second. And then Kevin Kiermeyer hits a home run to make it four to one, kind of uh, giving the, the Rays some cushion. Then in the next inning, the top of the fifth, Randy Rosarena strikes again. Uh, making it five to one, and uh, I guess it's the Yankees kind of playing catch up from there, and the Rays ended up winning the game, uh, eight to four. Charlie Morton also had a very good start, looking like the Charlie Morton that we've kind of become familiar with. Uh, he didn't have the best year this year, but looked very good. Five innings, one earned run, six strikeouts from him. Uh, so that was very, um, that looks very good if you're a Rays fan 
And, uh, yeah, they went up. You know, the Yankees, you definitely, if you're a Yankees fan, you, you, you want to win the Cole games and you want to win the Tanaka games. And uh, that didn't didn't come to fruition there. Mm-hmm. So then you have game four. Um, it is the Rays going with the bullpen game against Jordan Montgomery. Uh, I was, you know, I was certainly questioning how deep he was going to go into the game. And it ended up kind of being a Yankees bullpen game. Uh, so Ryan Thompson goes out there. Uh, allows two runs uh, on a home run to Luke Voigt and a sack fly from DJ LeMahieu in two and a, in one and two thirds innings. And then you have Ryan Yarbrough coming out, which is what I expected. And to his credit, he did a pretty good job. Uh, five innings pitched, two earned runs, both runs on a home run from Gleyber Torres. Uh, only one strikeout, interestingly. Uh, but really what they needed Yarbrough to do was just build a bridge to the end of the game to, to save as many pitchers as possible. And then Aaron Slagers ended up getting the final four outs. Uh, and the Yankees, they survived. They won the game 4-1. to one. Their bullpen was amazing. Five innings pitched, no base runners. I'm sorry, one base runner. One base runner on a walk from Chapman, and that was it. No hits yeah. allowed, no runs allowed. No one even to uh, – no one even got to second base against them. I mean, the, the bullpen was dominant and lights out. Chad Green went two innings. Zach Britton went an inning and two-thirds. I don't really understand why they took Britton out – he was dealing through the first five batters, and then they had put Chapman in uh, for four, which I thought was a little confusing. But it worked out regardless, and the Yankees uh, sort of – you feel like they stole that one, honestly, because I think a lot of people thought the Rays would have ended it that night. Yeah, uh, you know, and you face Jordan Montgomery. Um, you, you win a game against Tanaka. You win a game against, I guess, the surprise opener. And then you got to face Montgomery – uh, I guess you expect to win that game, but I guess the Rays didn't have the most most ideal pitching situation, and that leads into Game Five, where they announced Tyler Glass now is starting, but it's not a traditional start. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah. As yeah. soon as I heard him starting, I thought, oh, he's gonna go, he's gonna go once through the order, and then they're gonna take him out. Yeah, he was. Uh, and game Five, and that is exactly what they did. Literally, the last batter he faced was Kyle Higashioka. Uh, on the nine hitter in his first time up, uh, he did not face DJ LeMay. He was second time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it is int- it is funny that he literally after the nine batter uh, was cut short. He was literally on two days rest, um, so you can't really expect expect a full on start. And especially did, when it's uh, not the World Series, and you and you're expected to pitch after that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, two and a third, no hits, two walks, two strikeouts. They bring in Nick Anderson, who's the Rays' best reliever. Um, it, yeah. was a, it was an interesting move. I guess I guess they wanted to throw their best guys first. Um, to get the, yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking, is you throw your best guys out there and you give your offense, you know, a chance to, to get ahead uh, early. Yeah, and I guess it, I guess it worked out for, for them. I, you know, Nick Anderson gave up one home run, but two and two-thirds, one earned run, You'll take that. Uh, Not only that, and the first batter he faced was DJ LeMahieu with a guy on first and one out, and literally on the second pitch, he got a double play. Yeah, uh, that was – a perfect entrance. Yeah, it was great. That was great to see from a Rays perspective. Uh, just gave up that one home run that ended up going like 340 feet. And, I was just like, Judge, Judge missed that ball. Yeah, exactly. But he just has so much power uh, that it – that it got out and it wasn't even Yankee stadium. So you can't even pull that out. 
uh, Anderson had a good outing, you know, and then that led into Pete Fairbanks, who was pretty much their closer, I guess. He had a very good outing and uh, and led to Diego Castillo. Yankees went with the, with the traditional, uh, traditional, I guess, pitching order. When you got Garrett Cole out there, you have to do that. Garrett Cole, he went five and a third. He had a high pitch count through four innings. He did, his, he did his job, though. He gave up. Yeah, he had eight strikeouts, I believe, and he allowed one run that was on the home run to Austin Meadows. Uh, by the way, did you have any idea that that wall in San Diego had, like, that barrier the way that it did when Judge hit his head on it? Um, no, I, I think it's uh, – No idea. It was so strange. Like, I, what other wall – in the major leagues has that. Like, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a feature of like those, uh, those walls that allow like electronic advertising. Usually yeah. you see that stuff like, um, Pittsburgh, but even Pittsburgh has a giant wall and right. Yeah. Usually you see that like behind the catcher, like, uh, mm. behind the catcher or like behind first behind, a. Uh, first base yeah yeah um I, mean, I guess the only way we really can notice that is if Aaron Judge is playing right field when he's six foot seven leaping at the wall and he hits his head because he's quite frankly the only guy that can reach his head up there on a bounce um yeah I guess yeah, so that was weird so Austin Meadows hits a home run uh he left the fastball in uh in the zone too much and obviously that made it a 1-1 game and from there uh in the sixth Pete Fairbanks had his first inning and he ended up uh, putting the Yankees in their only situation all game where they had runners in scoring position where he got LeMahieu to ground out, got Judge to fly out. So he had two quick outs and then Hicks singled up the middle and then Stanton walked to bring up Luke Voigt. And on one and two, he got him swinging on a hundred up and in, which I mean, if you're Luke Voigt, no shame on striking out on a hundred up and in. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, that was a, that was a crazy pitch to see. And yeah, Garrett Cole, I guess, you know, high pitch count. Props to the Rays for putting up very good at-bats and getting him out uh, relatively early and, you know, giving them, a, giving them a shot at some of the bullpen guys because outside of Meadows, no one was getting, no one was getting uh, Garrett Cole. And, yeah, it was a game of home runs. Judge hits, hits the home run to give the Yankees a 1-0 lead. Austin Meadows a home run to tie it. And then in the bottom of the eighth inning, uh, Aroldis Chapman on the mound, Mike Brasso up. Mike Brasso had been thrown at intentionally or unintentionally, we're not sure, by Aroldis Chapman drafted. Early in, earlier in the season. He puts up a long at bat. I think it was ten pitches. Ten pitch. Nine pitches had gone, had gone by on the tenth pitch. Takes a fastball that ate a little too much plate and puts it in the left field seats. It was a, it was a real poetic moment uh, it was, to, put the, to put the raise ahead. It was unreal. I mean, first of all, Mike Brasso, undrafted, uh, which is so uncommon in Major League Baseball because the draft is super long. And, I mean, that could certainly be something that we see more of in the future, being that there was only a five-round draft this year. But nonetheless, being undrafted – and being able to, A, make it to the big leagues, B, make it on a postseason roster, and C, 
get to this moment, uh, poetic justice. Uh, I mean, this is something that they write in Hollywood. Maybe probably not even. And Mike Brasso, a hundred mile an hour heater right inside, and he took that thing to left field and deposited it into the seats. Um, at that point, like, I mean, it was over at that point. Like, you knew that the Rays were going to lock it down in the ninth, and they sure did. Diego Castillo got both Stan and Void to go down looking, to go down swinging and looking, respectively. And then, uh, of course, you have the Gio Urshela lineout to end the game. Uh, the expected batting average on the, on the Gio Urshela lineout to end the game and ultimately the season for the Yankees was a crisp 690. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Very nice. Very nice way to end the Yankees season. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the Yankees. I mean, I think there's a lot to say about the Yankees and where they go from here. And I think we should just get into that because Araldus Chapman, you know, he blew it again. You know, this is the second consecutive year where he's given up the season ending home run. And I pointed this out to you earlier and on Twitter, Araldus Chapman has given up three home runs in his career in the postseason. And they've all been the most, some of the most iconic home runs in recent postseason history. Yeah, you have the Rajay Davis, uh, the Rajay Davis home run to tie the game in Game Seven of the 2016 World Series, uh, which is like that might be, it's one of the moments of the decade, for sure. Even though the Indians didn't want the Indians win. lost. That was the, that was the highlight of that game, and the Indians didn't even win it. Yeah, it was just. It was a crazy. That was an unbelievable moment. I remember when I was watching that, my my jaw just dropped. Literally, that was the first time. That was the first time I believe that the Cubs were cursed. Yeah, like that was a crazy moment. And then last year, twenty nineteen, you have Jose Altuve winning the ALCS on one swing of the bat uh, with a with a two run homer to walk it off in Houston. That was a big moment, and. Uh, then uh, this this home run against for, against Mike Brasso uh, to give the Rays a postseason series win and a route to the ALCS uh, in a ten pitch at bat. Also, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy that those are the only home runs he's given up in the postseason because like yeah. he still has a somewhat decent postseason resume, uh, but still those. Those three, three, three home runs he's given up. Yeah, iconic. But, yeah, the Yankees, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, it's weird. It's weird this year they didn't have fans. I think that played a, a decent factor, decent enough factor. Um, they have Luis Severino coming back uh, next year. But, but that's yeah. only going to be in, like, May or June. Like, that's not, that's not an opening day thing. That's true. It's not, yeah, it's not an opening day thing. But, I mean, I don't know what else you can do. They, they got Stanton in uh, 2018. They got LeMahieu, which ended up being a big deal. And Paxton. LeMahieu, they got to they gotta extend LeMahieu yes. somehow. The number, the number one, number two, and number three priority for the Yankees this offseason is, is re-sign DJ LeMahieu. Do not ever let him walk that man has to be a Yankee next year or else we are not looking at this team seriously we're just not yeah he is so important to that Yankees lineup and uh yeah they need to they need to give him everything 
that they can in order to keep him in that lineup. That is, that is the number, like I just said, the number one, two, and three thing you look at. You don't look at anything else until that is done. Second of all, do we, do we think that Aaron Boone is back next year? Are we convinced? Um, I, I think he'll be. I think he'll be back. Yeah. I, I um, mean, but I mean, they just, I mean, they've randomly just got rid of Joe Girardi. So who knows? Um, and then this is a take that I've seen floating around a couple times. If you're, if you are playing two consecutive elimination games and you don't start Gary Sanchez in either of them, and you also pinch hit Mike Ford instead of him, do we really see a reason to have Gary Sanchez on this roster at the start of next season? Yeah, I'm – I don't know. Like, I, I think know. they actually should look to trade him because his stock is – I still think they can get a reasonably good package for him even after the down year that he just produced because you still have the potential. He has a fantastic arm as a catcher and he has a lot of power. Just the other things, the other tools are not really there at all. They did not show it all this year. But that's a guy that should make your team better. Yeah, and he, you know, back when, back when he signed uh, as a 16-year-old, I think it was a record deal, um, a record uh, international signing deal that he had. So he's always been kind of a superstar in that system. And I don't know. I think he's a guy that might be able to make it work somewhere else. Um, just not, not in pinstripes. I, I don't know. I, just a very weird, weird roller coaster really, ride of a career for him. I don't really know a situation where the Yankees could like lose a Sanchez trade because I think after what we've seen, I think it's fair to have the assumption that he's not really going to figure it out in New York. Like it very well, he very well could go on to have a great career somewhere else. And we may learn that it just was New York. That was the problem for him. Um, I mean, I would look to trade him and I would look to, I mean, maybe make Higashioka the starting catcher next season. Uh, I, I, he's on a, he's on a good offensive trend. If you look year to year, he is getting better every season. So that's certainly encouraging. And he's also a brick wall behind the plate. Uh, that's really all you need from your catcher, especially when your lineup is as good as it is. Um, yeah, you trade Gary yeah. Sanchez. You look to do it at least. I think Aaron. Bo- I think Aaron Boone. I think it's fifty-fifty with him, honestly. Um, and honestly, I, the one thing I think we should put more emphasis on: why would you pinch hit Mike Ford there? Why in the world would you pinch hit Mike Ford there? If you first of all, he hasn't gotten a hit since August. Uh, and if you if you're looking to get a lefty righty matchup in that situation, where is Mike Talkman? Where is he? Why is he not in there? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, it was, he pinch hit Mike Ford in what the leadoff spot? The right? leadoff spot in the eighth inning, and he struck out looking against Diego Castillo. And, and if it was for Higashioka, and then they put Sanchez in defensively, which if you're gonna if you're gonna substitute Sanchez, make it an offensive thing, not a defensive thing, especially if Chapman is in there, and. And then if you want the lefty-righty matchup, like I mentioned, put in Talkman. And then if not, put in Clint Frazier, who is one of your best bats that you've had all year, who for some reason didn't get a lot of playing time because, uh, of, because of Brett Gardner. 
Um, he's going to be a free agent too, and I have no idea what his situation is going to be. And you also have Gary Sanchez, who, you know, he's not, you know, he's not your best bat, but he has a lot of power. And if he gets that one swing, he can make it a tie. He can make it – he can give you a lead. That wasn't – it wasn't even a tie. It wasn't even a raise lead at that point. He could have given you the lead there. And you pinch hit Mike Ford, who hadn't had a hit since August. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I guess, I guess, yeah, questionable decision making when you put it like that. Yeah, I guess the more I think about it, you know. It makes zero sense. Eric like, Boone a lot, also. To, a lot of people, like, want to point to the analytics saying that they're the reason Mike Ford was hitting. No, there was no reason for Mike Ford to be hitting there. There was zero. Yeah, exactly. Not a reason for Mike Ford to be hitting there. Yeah, Aaron Boone, you know, he's taken over since 2018. 2018, they were the AL East favorites. They did not win the AL East. This year, they were the AL East favorites, did not win the AL East. They won it in 2019. Um, and, you know, he finished second in manager of the year. But, you know, who knows how much of that was just, you know. Manager of the year. And all you need to know about the impact on manager of the year with longevity is the fact that Paul Molitor won it in 2017 and then got fired after 2018. Yeah, so. And then his, and then his replacement went on to win it, so. I mean, yeah, the, the Yankees, after acquiring Stanton, LeMayhew, uh, Garrett Cole, you'd expect them to at least reach the World Series in the last three years. Um, so maybe they maybe they put it on Boone and uh, they move on from him. Um, I don't think he's a guy that would be that hard to move on from. Uh, the more the more you explain. So yeah, it also, could, fifty fifty seems about right. One thing I'd like to add: I've seen a lot of people. Putting it's fair. It's fair to blame the game on Chapman because he gave up the home run. However, there's a lot of people saying like Chapman needs to understand that his fastball doesn't scare people as much as it used to, which is a fair point. However, if you throw 100 miles an hour, you're obviously going to use it. Secondly, Chapman, I don't know if you've noticed, but he developed a splitter late this season and it's it's been moving. So yes, he is a- addressing this issue, and I don't think we need to start calling at it now. Yeah, exactly, and. As he gets older, he'll have to uh, address that because as the game evolves, he doesn't look as scary. And as as he kind of devolves, he'll probably lo- end up losing velocity at some point. And he's not throwing 103 anymore. Uh, he'll have to develop those pitches. Yeah, he's um, not throwing 103 anymore, but he is he is adapting. This you know he has his splitter now, which I will be intrigued to see next season. Yeah, that that should be fun to watch. But yeah, mm-hmm. you know, Chapman, he, he's definitely the guy. He's definitely the closer for the next couple of years. He's got two more years on his deal. But yeah, who knows with Boone. Speaking of, uh, um, speaking of guys who have two more years on their deal, Aaron Judge, you know, this is a big offseason for him because he's in his second year of ARB. Uh, I don't know what the, the record for second year ARB is, but he could make a run at it. I don't I know if he really Betts has it. I think, I think Betts has it too. Didn't he get 20 mil? 20 million, yes. Yeah. Okay, he's probably not making a run at that. However, if you're going to extend Aaron Judge, I feel like now is the time to do it. Um, and honestly, I don't know if they do it because he has injury history. Obviously, this was the second year in a row where he had an injury that was not – that was his fault. You can't really blame him for his injury in 2018. He got hit by a pitch. Um, 
And it was the it was what it was it was his oblique, right? Or was it his hamstring or what was it? He had an oblique issue in twenty nineteen. Yeah. And he, he had that again this year. And after he came back from that, he started slumping and he kind of continued his slump into the playoffs. He only hit uh, like 130 or something like that. And to his credit, he did hit three home runs. But, you know, his health is a question mark. He's going to be in his age 31 season when he begins his new contract. And you have to assume that he might become a full-time DH at some point. So how much do you really want to invest in this guy, even if he is the face of your franchise? Yeah, that might be a decision they make that they uh, want to make later, um, not yeah. a decision that they want to – not an extension they want to make when he's second-year arbitration. Um, then you're going to – yeah, you want to give yourself more time there. So, But I think, that is, I think that is something to start considering now is what do the Yankees do with Aaron Judge in the next two years? Yeah, exactly. And he'll, he'll probably have to prove himself next year – Maybe get by staying on the field. Yeah, exactly. Try I don't to think his I don't think his performance is a question. Yeah, I don't think his performance is a question, but it's whether he can stay on the field or not. Exactly. You, he, he'll have to survive a full season to get any type of extension, um, any type of significant extension, um, mm-hmm. in the in the near future. But yeah, the Yankees, uh, sort of in a stalemate because they they've done so much to improve the team but they just haven't quite gotten there. I would kind of equivocate them, sort of, and I'm not a big basketball fan, but like the Boston Celtics. The Celtics, they've made, they made a lot of moves. Some worked, some didn't, but they just can't get past the Eastern Conference Finals, and that seems to be the case with the Yankees right now. Can't seem to get to the uh, World Series yet, despite having a good core, some free agent additions, but... I don't know. Just haven't haven't seemed to pull it all together. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that translates into our into uh, your interview mm-hmm. with Jeff Passan. Uh, I mean, the man needs no introduction. One of the definitely in the top three uh, baseball media people out there. He's the he's the uh, ESPN. Uh, baseball person uh, over there. Just unbelievable that we were able to get him some way. It's going to be great. Here's Jeff Passan. All right. I am here with Jeff Passan, MLB insider for ESPN, formerly of Yahoo Sports, also a New York Times bestselling author. Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So we're just going to get right into it here. Uh, so I want you to give me a quick overview of your career in journalism, how it started, uh, how you got into baseball, how long you've been doing it, things of that nature. Oh boy, we got to go back to, well, we can go back really early. My father uh, worked at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland for 42 years and did weekend sports talk in Cleveland. So I was introduced to the business at a very young age and uh I was not a terrible athlete, but I recognized early that I wasn't going to be making it in sports. So uh, I figured that I would try and get into it as uh, as best as I possibly could. And writing was that avenue. When I was 14 years old, I started working for uh, a suburban paper in Cleveland called the News Herald. And 
uh, did some freelance work for them, high school sports. I did a volleyball tournament. Uh, I did a Indian story uh, at a pretty young age. And uh, from there, went to Syracuse and spent four years there covering Big East basketball and football. And uh, did internships during the summer, Baseball Weekly, the Buffalo News, the Newark Star-Ledger, and the Washington Post. Uh, first job out of college was at the Fresno Bee in California. I got hired to do feature writing, but one of my colleagues started doing an academic fraud investigation into Fresno State basketball, so I took over the beat there, did that for a couple of years, and uh, got hired covering baseball when I was 23, I think, at the Kansas City Star. Uh, did that as national baseball writer there for a couple of years, went to Yahoo. I think I spent 14 or 15 years at Yahoo before joining ESPN on January 1st, 2019. Okay. Wow. So you really knew from the beginning that this was the career path you wanted to go down. I mean, 14 is when you got your start. That's, that's pretty early. It's really early. I have a 13-year-old son now, and the idea that he's going to have any idea what he does when he grows up seems completely ridiculous. So uh, the fact that I knew as young as I did, I was extraordinarily fortunate. And uh, the fact that I I had a, you know, a sense of the business, too, made things that much better because I, I knew what to expect because I could ask my dad. And, and he had been doing it for decades. And uh, gave great advice along the way. Yeah. So I want to jump into some, some baseball related things, obviously some, some things that you've been around, uh, possibly the biggest storyline over the past year in major league baseball was the Astros and Red Sox sign stealing scandals. Uh, of course there we had a lot of well-respected individuals around the game having their reputation sort of tarnished because of this. So when did you begin to realize that the results of these sign-stealing scandals, particularly the Astros, was going to be as detrimental as it turned out? I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here by saying this, but instantaneously. I mean, I, like, I, I, had, uh, I had gotten word that the athletic story was going to be dropping when we were at the GM meetings and... Uh, I knew right then and there that the fallout was going to be enormous because all the things that they had printed, I had heard and I knew about. I just did not have the sourcing uh, to confidently get it into print. And if you look back, um, I think it was 2018, uh, I did write something about the the Astros banging on a trash can. Um in in their dugout and it was it was sort of buried deeper into the story in hindsight than it should have been because clearly this was the scheme that uh they used to their benefit to help win a world series that year but um i you know my my initial thought was a lot of people in prominent positions are going to lose jobs and uh, i'm genuinely curious what this is going to look like for the players and what the fallout is going to be there. And as we've seen for the individual players, the, the fallout has been more off the field uh, than anything uh, suspension wise that would have, uh, would have taken away time for them playing. Yeah. So now from a journalistic standpoint, what were some of the challenges that you had to go through when reporting these stories about the scandals, whether it be in 2018, whether it be, you know, when it was all out there? I mean, uh, going back to 2018, um, you know, I 
there had been rumblings for a long time about uh, the Astros cheating. And if you're going to accuse somebody in print or on the air of doing something as egregious as that, it's almost like the standard needs to be having someone on the record. And and I think that was the case with the athletic story. They they had all the all the same information I did. Uh, they just had Mike Fires talking about it and detailing it. And and they uh, to to be honest, they knew more of the details than I did. I didn't fully understand how the with the, uh, the trash can banging worked and. Uh, how quickly they were able to take the video and translate it uh, into on-field success. Um, but but it's always, uh, especially with a story of that magnitude, about ensuring that everything you have is right. Because if even one small detail is wrong in the story, then the credibility of all the other details starts to fall apart. And and you can be questioned about, uh, well, if, if you can't get this part right, then why should I trust you on the other part? And, and I never reached that threshold where I was confident enough to put it into print what exactly they had done because I just didn't have the sourcing that uh, I needed for a story like that. Okay. Uh, one real quick, uh, you said you knew for a while that, you know, there was stuff going back to rumors about them cheating. How long was that exactly? I think I first heard about it in 2017. Okay. I mean, when, when, when it was happening, like there, the players, players would just tell me the Astros are doing something. They, they have to be, there's something going on and in the trash can stuff. Uh, I think I heard in 2018, uh, pretty early in the season, I think. Okay. Were there any sort of consequences on your part after, after reporting these stories, like things that became harder for you? Um, no, I don't think so. I, you know, I think that the players understand what my job is and they don't have to like it. And, and I don't blame them for not liking it, but I think they respect it. And, and they know that there's not anything personal ever when it comes to what I'm writing about a team or a player. I, I just, I can't allow myself to do that because uh, objectivity is of the utmost import. And if I let any personal feelings get in the way, then I'm not doing my job to the best of my ability. And and so I think because I've tried to be uh, as fair and even-handed as possible, the, the consequences have been more with like angry fan bases. And that's fine. Fan bases are going to get angry mm-hmm. when you write things about their team that they perceive to be negative. Uh, even, even if those things are truthful, uh, the, the lens of a fan is completely different than that of a journalist. And uh, listen, there are plenty of fans out there who understand uh, what I try to do and, and respect it. But there are plenty who think that I have some kind of bias against whether it's the Astros, the Yankees, the Red Sox, whatever team there may be. And, uh, I, there's nothing I can do about that other than to say, no, that's not true. Uh, that's, that, that's not right. That's not how I operate. Uh, my work doesn't say that, but uh, they're going to believe what they want to believe. And uh, all I can do is try and let the work speak for itself and hopefully change their minds. Sure. So did you speak with anyone in the Astros or Red Sox organizations during these times? And if so, how did you go about doing that when both organizations were sort of under fire? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you absolutely try to get that information and, you know, just run into a brick wall like that. That was uh, what happened there. I just I didn't have enough people who were in positions to know exactly what happened, who were willing to to discuss it, whether it was on the record uh, on background or off the record. And you, you keep trying, you keep making phone calls, you keep sending texts, you hope that you run into someone who's willing to help you out on the story. But uh, sometimes the sourcing just isn't there. And uh, that's what I ran into uh, with both of these stories. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is obviously a case where, like I mentioned before, you have a lot of reputations. You know, people are wondering at this time if Jeff Lunau is ever going to have a job again, if AJ Hinch is ever going to have a job again. So how do you sort of going go about getting a story out there knowing that, you know, these consequences could be out there? Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely a human element to this job. And, and you understand that when you report a story like this, it can have a significant fallout on people's lives. And, and you certainly do weigh that in the process when you're trying to figure out, is what I'm doing fair? Is what I'm doing reasonable? Is what I'm doing ethical? And uh, I, I don't think I've ever stepped beyond those bounds. I, I think in the end, the, the way that I, I rationalize it is that they made decisions and the decisions that they made, as long as I'm reporting them truthfully, as long as I'm giving as much context as I can behind them, there's nothing malicious going on here. Uh, it's me telling the truth. And if the truth happens to have a detrimental effect, on somebody's uh, job status, on somebody's reputation, on somebody's career, uh, those are decisions that they made. And I, I'm, I'm not perpetuating any falsehoods. I'm not creating any narratives here. I'm just going straightforward with what happened. And, and that's, you know, that's sort of the beauty of being a news reporter. Um, it, it's just the facts. And if you stick with the facts, uh, I, I feel like I'm safe uh, in doing the right thing that way. Okay. So there are a lot of conflicting reports regarding uh, some of the perspectives here where you have Jeff Luno getting fired and then saying, I'm not a cheater. It was the lower level employees. It was the bench coach. And then later on, you have the Wall Street Journal article that came out in February that explained, you know, it was an intern in the Astros organization that showed Jeff Luno a PowerPoint about the the cheating method so how do you go about those conflicting reports and how do you uh you know make sure that what you have is valid uh, i uh, with jeff luno in particular i look at it like this when you're the head of a baseball operations department your responsibility is what happened in baseball operations you're responsible for all of the employees beneath you whether it's a consigliere or a low-level intern and and in the end the decisions that are made ultimately fall on you. So even if you're not the person who's going out there and and directly mandating that this be the approach that they take, you still need to be responsible for their actions. And that's why I think he was fired as much as anything. Even if he was not the architect uh, of what happened, he was in charge of, uh, of the Astros baseball operation side when it did happen. And uh, thus, the, there's a, a level of responsibility and culpability for him there. Okay, uh, so I want to transition into another story of yours. On November 23rd, 2017, 
you wrote a column for Yahoo Sports explaining that you decided to give up your Hall of Fame ballot after four years of voting, I believe. So what went into this decision and how did you think the public was going to perceive that news from you? I, I'll answer the latter first. I honestly don't remember spending too much time thinking about it. And, you know, the, the public is, is going to respond how it responds. I, I'm used to uh, people telling me I'm the worst. I'm used to people telling me that they love what I wrote and I'm used to everything in between. And uh, ultimately, when it came to something like this, the, the question for me was, am I comfortable uh, with two things? Number one, with the logic behind my decision and number two, with uh, the consequence of it. And I, I, listen, I loved voting for the Hall of Fame. I thought it was a privilege. I thought it was a, a really cool thing that I got to do every year. I spent a lot of time on my ballot. I really took it seriously. But uh, when, when Joe Morgan uh, circulated a letter that uh, went out through the Hall of Fame, essentially saying that there should not be anybody who has uh, used performance-enhancing drugs in the Hall, I thought it was incredibly hypocritical. Uh, not only are there already players in the Hall of Fame, I believe, who have used PEDs, but this was trying to blackball Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, who I think are two of the best players in baseball history and uh, who, despite their actions, I believe uh, deserve inclusion in the Hall of Fame because of that. I, I have no problem on their plaques saying what they're alleged to have done. I have no problem uh, with there being a, a wing in the Hall of Fame devoted to steroids, explaining the story of how PEDs came into the game and the influence that they had on it. But in the end, if I'm going to participate in something, uh, I, I want to feel good about the organization with which I'm participating. And the actions taken by the Hall, I thought were just incredibly hypocritical and uh, singling out uh, people who didn't deserve to be singled out. Do they still like send you ballots every year? Because you are like technically still eligible, right? Yeah, they no, they ask every year, do you want to vote this year? Which which I appreciate. And and it, the thing is, uh, a lot of the people who work for the hall, I have deep respect for and and a great appreciation for. And I think they're good people with uh, the right motives in mind. I I just I look at the hall a little bit differently. I think than than. Uh, a lot of people who work there do. I, I see it as a museum. I don't see it as uh, this this ineffable uh, place where uh, baseball is, uh, you know, baseball is perfect. And and I think sometimes they they want to portray it that way, and I understand that. You know, their their job is uh, in a lot of ways to be salesmen of the game, and they do a very good job of that. But uh, the way I look at the hall is that it should exist to tell the story of baseball, good, bad, and otherwise. And and while I don't sit here and laud uh, the usage of performance-enhancing drugs by players, uh, I do think that it's uh, really a part of the history of the game and that that history can be told uh, while also honoring the players who did take PEDs and yet were among the greatest ever to play. Okay. So, uh, whether this be next year, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, whatever, what do you think it would take? I don't know if you thought about this at all, but what would it take for you to consider taking it back? Oh, boy. 
I haven't given that a whole lot of thought. I think if I think if Bonds and Clemens uh, were allowed in or were voted in, and and the tone uh, that was put out there by the Hall of Fame changed and and showed uh, showed that they were likelier to not just consider the future candidacies of players who had taken PEDs. But but uh, to look at themselves uh, as much as a museum for the history of baseball as as something more than that, I would consider it. Uh, listen, I'm I'm not close-minded when it comes to anything. So uh, I hope that day comes. I hope I can vote for the Hall of Fame again in good conscience. But that's what it's going to come down to. It's going to be a matter of uh, do I feel good about participating in this process and do I feel like it's a fair process? Yeah. I mean, I agree with all that, you know, I'm very few people out there are more adamant about bonds than, than someone like me. I'm on that case a lot, uh, especially Clemens too. And yeah, I mean, I agree with all, all you said about those, you know, the way they see it and the way that they sort of blackball them. And yeah, I'm hoping for change as well. It would be nice. Would I'm not be. anticipating it anytime soon. I will, <laughs> I will be in Cooperstown if that day comes, if, if people are allowed, of course, you know, if, you know, I mean, they canceled this year, but yeah, if that day ever comes, I will be in Cooperstown. Um, one last question before I let you go here. Uh, predictions for the rest of the playoffs? Uh, at the start of the postseason, I said Dodgers and Rays in the World Series. I have no reason to deviate from that at this point. And I felt a little lame going with the chalk picks, but uh, I think they're the two best teams in baseball. I think the, the Rays... Uh, really showed something in that game five against the Yankees. It was uh, it was as good of a personification of modern baseball as I've seen. Um, and, and listen, I I really wish there were more balls in play, generally speaking. But to see the Rays just run out this group of guys throwing 95 to 100 with plus to plus plus breaking balls, it was like my God. Uh, this is what baseball has become, and it's kind of awesome. And, and the Dodgers, I know the Braves haven't lost a game yet either, uh, but the the Dodgers and the way that they ran roughshod uh, over the Brewers and the Padres uh, it really illustrates how good, how talented, how deep they are. And despite questions about what they're going to do with the back end of their bullpen, I, I do see them beating Atlanta, uh, though I think it's going to be – I don't think it's going to be easy. I think the Braves got a couple of games in them. I think this is going to go six. Um, I, I do think the the Rays are a pretty significantly better team than the Astros, uh, but uh, the way that Houston has uh, first beat Minnesota uh, and then beat Oakland in the last round, it's been awfully impressive to see uh, how Houston has – sort of shaken off questions about its mediocre regular season and come through when it mattered. Yeah. Uh, my co-host on my podcast and I both had raised Dodgers uh, in July at the start of the season. So I think, I think I had that as well, actually. I know I had the Dodgers cause I picked the Dodgers from the start. I'm pretty sure I had the raise too. It was, so it's hard not to pick the Dodgers, especially with Mookie now. Yeah, they're they're absurd. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say they're the best baseball team I've seen since I've been uh, covering the sport. You know, coming up on they're not quite at 20 years, but we're getting there. Uh, and and I I hate to 
be a prisoner of the moment, which that may be, but they are so good. <laughs> they're, they're just they're so much fun to watch. They do they do literally everything well. They they hit well. Uh, they hit for average. They hit for power. They hit for contact. Uh, they they go both ways platoon wise. They field well. Uh, they're they're pitching starting pitching and bullpen both excellent. I mean it's just a team without a clear weakness. Yeah, I mean, and you said it right there. So we're going to have to cut it off there. Jeff, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. And uh, we look forward to hearing you on ESPN, uh, on wherever you're, you're going for the rest of the playoffs on your analysis. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. What a fantastic uh, interview with Jeff Passan. Uh, yeah, we was. I mean, I was extremely glad that he was able to make the time. He was very generous, and yeah, I'm really excited for uh, for you guys. I'm really glad you guys uh, got to hear that interview. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I'm obviously very glad that he was able to give me the time of day, especially during the postseason. Yeah, you'd think he he'd be a little busier, but I guess I guess it's better now than uh, in the heat of free. We do have a day off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable that that Jeff Passan has a connection to the show to be named later now. <laughs> It'll be forever but, ingrained in Joe's history. But that leads into uh, kind of our preview of the next two series. Um, I, I guess we can start with the NLCS. It's Dodgers-Braves. We've seen this postseason series before uh, in the 2018 NLDS. Uh, each team has changed a little bit in different ways uh dodgers have just kind of uh cycled through some guys you know they they've lost you know hyunjin ryu and um a, a, another starter or two but they've gotten you know dustin may julio urias back back in that starting rotation and the braves have just kind of uh grown and they've added uh, Ian Anderson to their uh, to their rotation. Uh, Max Fried has become more prominent in the rotation. Uh, Acuna's gotten better. Albies has gotten better. Even Freddie Freeman has gotten better. So uh, an interesting interesting new look uh, at this postseason series. Uh, they they didn't face each other this season. Obviously, uh, they were not in the same uh, bubble. I guess you would say. Todd, so in 2019, the Dodgers won four out of six against the Braves. And uh, there were some significant performers in 2019 for the Dodgers against the Braves. Uh, Justin Turner against the Braves in 2019. He hit 538 with a 1725 OPS in 28 plate appearances against the Braves in 2019. Maybe that can carry over somewhat. And Max Muncie against the Braves in 2019. He hit 400 with a 1328 OPS against the Braves in 2019 in 23 plate appearances. Uh, so some significant performers. What do you think, how do you think uh, this series will differ from their 2018 matchup? Well, I think the Braves are a more established team for sure. Uh, yeah. I just looked at the rotation from the 2018 matchup between them. They had Mike Fulton Nevis start game one Obviously, that ship has since sailed. Uh, Anibal Sanchez was in game two. Remember when he played for the Braves? 
Yeah. Uh, that one good season. And then they had um, Sean Newcomb pitch game three. And that was the game that they won. But Newcomb only went two and two-thirds. Uh, Acuna hit a grand slam against Bueller. So I'm excited to see that matchup again. Uh, and then Phil, ne- Phil Nevis started game four for them. And they lost that game, obviously. But the matchup that I'm most excited for, and I guess this goes without saying, if you know me, you know that this is the one. Clayton Kershaw versus Ian Anderson. This is the, this is, I got my calendar marked. I believe it's going to be Tuesday that this matchup happens. Yeah, Tuesday. Uh, I couldn't be more excited. This is Clayton Kershaw. You know, he does have the narrative in the postseason, but he's been electric and lights out in his first two starts this year. And Ian Anderson uh, needs no introduction. He still has yet to give up a run this postseason. And I'm excited to see what he does against a team of this quality. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, this is his biggest challenge yet. Uh, facing the best team, you know, best team in baseball right now, currently. Um, not necessarily saying that it's a guarantee that they'll they'll win, but best team in baseball currently, and he'll be facing up against them. And, yeah, he'll be facing up against a, uh, a future Hall of Famer for sure um, in Clayton Kershaw. And, yeah, Clayton Kershaw also, you know, facing a – a very legit offense. I, you know, the Padres offense is good, but the Braves offense, you could argue, um, is better as especially trending better. Um, so that's going to be a, it's going to be a matchup for sure. Um, should we just get, do we have anything more to say on this? I mean, I think, I think it's pretty cut and dry, honestly. Um, I'm nervous about the Braves depth. Obviously Kyle Wright did a great job, but we haven't seen their game four starter. I don't know who it's, have they announced their uh, their like roster? Because I really don't know who they'd go with in Game Four. Yeah, I, I definitely worry about the Braves starter depth. Uh, uh, I, I think this is you know power offense. Obviously, you know the Braves have that big three in their lineup with Freeman, Acuna, and Ozuna. They also have a supporting cast of Darno, of Swanson, uh, guys that have been able to come through for them when they need it most. Uh, so that's been awesome. Duval as well. So I'm excited to see that offense. I think the offense is going to need to really be there, especially with runners in scoring position. They're going to need to get those key hits if they want to beat LA because obviously they're going to have the advantage in pitching. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're going to have the advantage of uh, pitching and yeah, you, you want that offense to jump out, get it, you know, get started early put the pressure on the Dodgers and, uh, you know, shake them up a little bit because the Dodgers so far um, have, have not faced much, much of a, uh, much of a threat uh, in terms of in game, you know, even that Padres game, they were, they were leading the entire time. So they haven't really had to play from behind yet in the postseason. So if the Braves can do that, maybe they can shake things up. Uh, should we get into predictions? Yeah, let's do it. You want to so, go first? I've been, uh, yeah, I'll I'll go first. I've been pondering. I've been pondering this. I'm I'm saying the Dodgers will win, but I'm thinking how many games? Um, it could go five. It could go seven. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. Um, it's all about kind of what the Braves offense is able to do. We know who has the starting pitching advantage. We know who has the bullpen advantage. 
it's kind of about uh, which offense does better and if the Braves offense can jump out. And what I'm going to say is the Dodgers and Braves, they will split the first two. And, uh, and then I think the Dodgers are going to take it from there. I think the Dodgers are going to win in five. I was literally going to say the same thing. Uh, I got the Dodgers winning games one, three, four, and five. One, three, four, and five. Yeah. It, it's, I, yeah. Kinda, I feel bad because I've, I've picked against the Braves in every series, mm-hmm. but I, 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 the Dodgers are such, such a machine, man. And they're really going for it this year. Uh, yeah. And for that reason, I think they're going to win in five games. And that's, that's not a knock on Atlanta at all, but LA is just such a machine. Yeah. They, they look like the Terminator right now. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like anything is, is getting in their way. And I don't think the Braves, Braves are a very good team, but I don't think they serve that, uh, that challenge. So um, maybe we'll be wrong. I hope, I hope we're a bit wrong. I hope we have a longer series. I hope it's a more exciting series. Yeah, we always root for a long series. And now we go into the ALCS. Um, you know, two teams that I think a lot of experts, or I guess, I guess you would have said before the season the Astros could go far. But um, you did, at the beginning did of the postseason. Beginning of the postseason, uh, more people had the Rays going further, but the Astros definitely not. And at the beginning of the season, most people had the Rays not going, uh, not going as far. But yeah, Rays Astros in the ALCS, uh, their paths cross. Um, what have What have you got uh, going for uh, for this series? I got a little nugget. Uh, this we probably should have said this in the recap, but uh, if you're still here, then you get this little nugget. Mike Brasso when he had that heroic performance in game five, he became the fifth player in postseason history to come off the bench and record two hits, including a homer. Yes. Uh, the most recent person to do it was Raul Ibanez. You remember that one, Chris, in 2012? Yeah, against the Tigers. Against the Orioles. What? <laughs> it was against the Orioles. 2012. It was in the, yeah, they faced, in 2012, they, it was, he was on the Yankees. They faced the Orioles in the American League Division Series. Uh, Raul Ibanez, he actually hit two home runs, believe it or not. He tied it in the ninth, and he hit a, a walk-off in extras, I believe. Um, and that was off the bench, and they went on to get swept by the Tigers. Yeah, he had one clutch hit against the Tigers, but not two in the same game, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, Mike Rosso. That's right. Um, there are some guys that the Rays are going to need to get more production out of in this series than they've had in the previous uh, matchups. And one of the, the main guy there is Brandon Lau. This was my midseason MVP. This is a guy who raked all year for Tampa Bay. And he went over in the last series, didn't get a single hit. And in the postseason, he's hitting 077 with a zero isolated power, has not had a single extra base hit, and has a 277 OPS. So that's got to change. We need to see more production out of him in the two spot, especially if Randy Rosarena is going to be hitting the way that he is in the three hole. You need guys getting on base for him because solo, you know, solo home runs aren't going to do it all the time. It did last night, but not all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brandon Lau, you, you want to see that he's kind of become a staple in the Rays lineup, and the Rays don't really have any of that 
you know, star power in the lineup. So you'd like to see a guy who was, you know, midseason MVP caliber to, uh, to produce for you. And yeah, good point. He want guys on base for Randy Rosarena right now. Didn't think that was a sentence I'd be saying uh, a month ago, but you want no. guys on base for Randy Rosarena, um, you know, in case he can, in case he can drive you in. Um, one, two people that I'd like to highlight from the Astros, I hinted at them earlier, Christian Javier and Framber Valdez. These are both young, young kids. Uh, Valdez did have a little bit of experience before this year, but this is Christian Javier's rookie campaign. And in the postseason so far, they have combined with, for an 0.98 ERA in 18 and a third innings pitched. They have been absolutely dominating. And Valdez got the nod for game one. He's going to be starting. Uh, Javier, I'm assuming, is going to be more of a long relief guy. But look out for those guys because they are the unfamiliar faces that have been carrying Houston uh, under the radar. Yeah, those uh, – yeah, the young pitching for the Astros have somewhat taken a place for Justin Verlander and, and Garrett Cole, who, you know, Cole is on another team now and Verlander is, has been injured for almost the whole year. So they've kind of taken, uh, taken his place – for, for the moment and have been clutch, uh, I guess, you know, Javier. Wait, is Javier a starter or a reliever? He was a starter this season, but they've been using him as a reliever. Yeah. So, yeah, in those late innings, they've been, they've been very clutch. Um, I mean, with this series, I mean, uh, the Rays, I, I would assume, are, are huge favorites, um, especially after beating the Yankees, who a lot mm-hmm. of people still had winning. If they can beat the Yankees, they can beat anybody. Yeah, exactly. And we said, we said last week that the winner of Rays Yankees was probably going to be in the World Series. Um, we we still probably stand by that, but the, uh, you know, the Astros, they've surprised us so far. We'll see. Maybe they can surprise us some more. That the offense is on a hot streak, but. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how how it matches up against that that Rays, you know, pitching machine over there. The uh, the key for the Rays, and this is the case with the Yankees, but they got to keep the ball in the ballpark because home runs have been uh, a hot commodity this postseason. A lot of the runs scored have been via the long ball. Uh, so I think this series is going to come down to who keeps the ball in the yard, and I think the Rays obviously have that capability. Um, and that's why I'm going to go Raisin 6. Raisin 6. Um, I'm, I'm pondering this one. I, I believe the Rays will win. Um, I mean, the, the Astros offense, they, they do look good. And uh, their, their pitching situation has worked. And the Rays offense, I'm still a little hesitant about, although Randy Rosarena has kind of provided hope. Um. Reasons. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking the Rays also. I'm thinking the Rays also get it done in five. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Astros. You know, I think they'll win a game, but um, the, I think the pit, the Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff pr- provides a lot more problems for them than the uh, Oakland Athletics pitching staff, and I think I think the Rays will will get it done in those five games, but I guess that leads 
to the conclusion of the episode. Uh, we're, I guess we're hoping for, we're also hoping for longer series, so we're not really rooting for these predictions, but... I, I want to have fun watching these games. Like, yeah. I have so much, I mean, I was a nervous wreck, but I had so much fun watching game five of the ALDS this year. Yeah, true. And if, like we predicted, if there is a raised Dodgers World Series, um, I think that will be a very exciting series when when we get there, if that series indeed happens. But we hope you enjoyed our division series recap and uh, LCS preview. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, uh, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Curran. Also, we would like to thank Jeff Passan for coming on the show today. That was yes. very generous of him. Yes. Uh, and he, yeah, you can follow really him enjoy. at Jeff Passan. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you're not, if you're not already, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, but follow, seriously, though, if you're not, follow him at Jeff Passan on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, he is a fantastic reporter. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons why I was thrilled to get him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Definitely follow him. I, I bet if you're listening to this, you definitely follow him for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Unbelievable guy. And uh, yeah, if you want to, if you want to watch the show, uh, this was a, this was a video episode. So you can go to our YouTube channel. It is called STBNL with Christiana and Daniel Curran. And we hope you enjoyed our LDS recap and our LCS preview. And we hope to, See you on our next episode where we're recapping the LCS and we're previewing the World Series. Wow. So we will see you. Uh, do, you think, do you think we should do a mid-series mid, uh, show? Like after I'll definitely game. have more time. So we could, we could do a mid-series show. Do it. Let's do, yeah, let's do a mid-series show. So, okay. Hoping well, there is opportunity for one and they're not both sweeps. Unless, yeah, unless, like, the Dodgers, unless, like, one team – wins three in a row like both both teams win three in a row like we'll see but maybe we'll maybe we'll have a, a mid-series uh episode maybe we won't but nonetheless we look forward to seeing and talking to you on our next episode see you then